So we're continuing in our series on prayer. This is week three, and I thought we need to get practical at some point here because a series on prayer, eventually we need to talk about how you pray and just get down to some practical things. And uh, one of the realities of prayer, and statistics don't lie, I looked up various statistics and read different things about the Christian church in North America, and I don't believe the statistics lie, but most of Western Christianity does not really enjoy a robust, regular, healthy prayer life. You know, you ask the questions anonymously of people who attend church regularly and who would call themselves evangelical Christians, they would admit that they just uh, don't pray as often or as diligently or as robustly as they would hope. And seemingly contrary to that fact is that prayer has a very strong sentimental value to believers, right? We uh, understand in our, in our sentiment and in our thinking that uh, we have these sort of deep theological feelings about prayer, but they don't interface with our actual lives. Christians as a whole, not pointing fingers necessarily at anyone here, but Christians as a whole in North America, they know and they feel that prayer is powerful and personal and irreplaceable and it's integral to their faith, but they don't pray like it is. So if you ask them the question, they know what prayer should mean to them, and they feel that it means that to them. But when you ask questions separately about their prayer life, it doesn't line up. We feel and know a lot more about prayer than we actually pray. And what is hindering the prayer life then of Christians if it's not knowledge? If we know and we feel what prayer should be, but we don't pray, what is it? And a lot of times it's guilt and it's confusion and it's frustration. We do it badly or, as we talked about last week, God seems silent or isn't answering. And so we get frustrated. And when we get frustrated and feel guilty, then it shuts down our prayer life. And we don't pray as much and as robustly and as fully as we know we should. And the same people, if you were to ask them, if I was to ask you, would give very meaningful descriptions of atonement, that we know that we're children of God, that we have access to the Father, that we're adopted, and all those other things, and and we have have really strong understanding of our relationship with God, but then practically, again, that relationship seems disjointed. It's not as warm and as close and as rich and as connected as we know it should be and can be. And so our prayer life with the Father that we love so much is, and no loves us, is less than it should. And the problem that poses the church as a whole, not just personally, but the church as a whole, the problem, I think, is that this kind of sort of intellectual Christianity of knowing things theologically and understanding positionally where we stand can't sustain on its own the onslaught of the modern world. If there's no heart-level function of Christianity, then our faith and our belief and the, and the relationship that we have with our Father is robbed of its power over temptation and distraction and deception of the world or of our own flesh. Because the world is bombarding us all the time with counter-messages to our faith and to what we know to be true from Scripture. And the enemy is at work in the world spiritually. And so just an intellectual or even sentimental understanding of prayer isn't going to be helpful. Prayer has to become real for our faith to have its full power in our life. And so we need to strengthen our prayer life habitually. I mean practically, in terms of practice. We need a stronger practice of our prayer life. 
in attitude, which is pretty good already, as I mentioned. I think we have a pretty strong understanding of the theology of atonement and who we are and where we are positionally and sanctification and all that stuff going on. Maybe we need a little more of that because good theology never hurts. But then also practice, which does need some work. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm just going to open up in a word of prayer. Father God, it is good to look into your word and find so much evidence of the importance of prayer because we we feel it sentimentally and we know it theologically and we um, are uh, filled with the realization of it spiritually that prayer is irreplaceable in our in our belief and in our faith and in our relationship with you. And so as we look into your word, Lord, we're encouraged that you feel the same way and that you have uh, done all those things that we talked about in the first sermon, sending your son to rend the veil, to break the barrier, to allow us to come boldly in your throne room, that you have adopted us as your children, that you have cleansed us and done all those things to allow us to pray. But then you have also modeled prayer and taught us to pray and invited us to pray and, and, and taught us how, Lord. And so that's what we look at now this morning. And so help us to look into your word and to understand how you would have us approach you um, and how we should come and, and work uh, on our prayer life. Because our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. So help us to discipline it. In Christ's name, amen. Now as much as this is practical, I love the, the music team's job in leading us into worship literally. And as much as this is going to be practical, um, all the practices and all the systems and all the acronyms and all the, the sort of processes that we can put into place really are not the intent and sole goal of prayer. Prayer is our heart's attitude towards God. So as I go through this, even though this is going to be sort of a practical sermon, you will see that I will deliberately keep steering each of these different points in prayer towards our heart attitude. Because as much as you can follow through a certain regiment of things to do, that is not prayer in itself without the attitude that comes with it. But it's like going to the gym. I use this example sometimes. Um, you know, you have to go to the gym and just go through the habit of going through the gym and figuring out how the machine works and working out on the machine the way the machine tells you to work. And you do it even though your heart's not in it yet and your mind's not there and the muscle memory isn't there, but you do it week after week after week and then eventually it starts to click and then you want to go to the gym. And the muscle memory is there and it just comes out of habit and you start to do these things practically and you start to live healthier and eat healthier and all of those things. And I think prayer in our spiritual life is a little bit like that. We don't want our spiritual life just to be a dry repetition of practices, because that's not what God is wanting for us. But sometimes the discipline of putting these things into place and practicing them on a regular value, or a regular um, rotation, or a regular schedule, then draws our heart into the, the, the condition that we want it to be. And so you can kind of think of it that way as we go through some of these practical things, that they are not prayer in and of themselves, but they can hopefully lead us and train us into the habits that we want to form in our life. And so as we go through the system, pay attention to the attitude that it's teaching, namely God's greatness, which is worship, and our helplessness and humility, which is where prayer really begins. Hannah Moore writes, prayer is not eloquence, but earnestness. Not the definition of helplessness, but the feeling of it. Not figures of speech, but earnestness of soul. 
Because that's what I want to get across. It's not about eloquence. It's not about the definition of helplessness. It's feeling helplessness. It's not about the words that we use. But it's the earnestness of our words coming from our soul. So first, a quick look at Jesus' system of prayer. If you want to understand prayer, it makes sense to start with Jesus. He came to earth to show us the way to the Father and to be the way to the Father and to teach us in all things by himself and by his spirit. And he taught us how to pray. And three very quick things that we'll take out of uh, the life of Jesus, first of all, is that he set aside a quiet time. Many times that Jesus is recorded, recorded praying, it's in the morning or it's even late at night. And beyond just praying every day, Jesus was looking for a quiet time in his day to pray. And so the first thing to start to put into practice, if you're one of these Christians in the statistics whose prayer life maybe isn't where it should be, even though in your heart and intellectually, if I was to ask you, you're confident in your atonement and your position with God and your sanctification and all of those things, but your prayer life isn't quite where you know it should be, then maybe this is a place to start right here is just find a quiet time. It's often in the morning, but it could be just before bed as well. Jesus prayed in the morning and he prayed at night. It, it needs to be a good time mentally, right? Your prayer time needs to be a time when you're mentally alert, when you're ready, because we give God our first fruits, right? Not our second, third, and fifth fruits. You know, prayer isn't something that you do at that time in the day when you're pretty much drained of everything else and you've got a few minutes left over for God. You, you carve out a quiet time and you carve out a good time mentally to be able to prayer, be able to pray. You know, our prayer life is not going to work well with a lot of distractions and mental tiredness. And so quiet time is the place to start in finding that quiet time. Mark 1.35 says, Rising early in the morning while it was still dark, he, Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And it doesn't have to be a long time. Jesus' prayer times varied from day to day. Sometimes he could pray in sprints, you know, just a few words or a few phrases here and there, just a sentence or two. The, the prayer that he teaches the disciples is only a few seconds long, really. You can pray it in under a minute. But Jesus could also run marathons of prayer. Like in Luke 6.12 says that Jesus spent the night praying to God. And so it's not always about the length of time, but it starts with the quietness of time. That he went to a desolate place, that he prayed early in the morning or late at night. You won't win the battle against distractions. And so the first thing there is just to avoid them and set aside a quiet time. And then a quiet place. Just before teaching the disciples prayer, Jesus said, go into your room and shut the door and pray. Or he said, go into your closet. You've heard that of the prayer closet. He said, go into your room and shut the door and pray. Because your father who is in secret, and, and to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you, he says in Matthew 6. And so by example, that's what he taught, but by example, Jesus most often removed himself from the crowds and even from the disciples in order to pray. Luke 5.16 gives an example. It says, But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And so you have a quiet time, but then you also find a quiet place. And that quiet place can be anywhere, but it helps in creating the quiet time. And it doesn't always have to be the same place, but it might be the same place. You know, there's no real rules here that I'm trying to lay out just so it be quiet time and a quiet place. And it can be anywhere. It has to be without distraction. And if it is the same place regularly, then it may become a special place that actually, just by going into that quiet place, leads you into a point of prayer. One of Jesus' favorite places was the Mount of Olives. And he would go there regularly to pray. 
And uh, I can imagine that just um, when he felt like he needed time with God, he's like, I'm, I mean, I know he knew he could talk to God anywhere and uh, that his father was always with him, but he, he went to the Mount of Olives. You know, he's just like, I'm just going to go there because if I go to that place, I just know it's going to just trigger all those things. I'm just going to get into that place where I meet with my father. And so you can create a quiet place that, that kind of triggers for you that healthy, spirit-filled prayer just by your association with that place. With Jesus, it was often in the wilderness, or the Mount of Olives, like I said. And that happens a lot here. We have lots of hills around here. It says Jesus went into the hills to pray. Well, you're in luck in Halliburton. you got lots of hills. Take your pick. You know? He prayed, he prayed in the hills, and you've got them. He also prayed by a lake. He prayed by lakes, and we have those too. So you can go there if you like. You know, whatever your quiet place is without distraction. You know, and, I'm, and I, walking the dogs doesn't count, okay? I'm just saying that right off the top. Walking the dogs and playing golf is not your time with God, okay? That's walking the dog and playing golf. Your time with God is with God. And it, it, might be on a, it might be in the wilderness, and it might be outside, but it's not with your dogs, and it's not playing golf. So just throw those excuses out right now. Quiet time, quiet place, and thirdly, a quiet mind. Just these three simple points from the example of Jesus. The purpose of the quiet mind is to give yourself over to God. And that's also sort of the first method in terms of Jesus saying, um, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. Right? Matthew 11:28 says. And so when I read that, I realize that Jesus is asking us to come in our mind, us who are weary and heavy burdened. Right? And he doesn't say, come to me, all you who are mentally disciplined, and all you who are well prepared, and all you who have, you know, everything planned out. He says, you're weary and you're heavy burdened, and you come and you give your mind, your weariness and your burdens over to God. The you that he wants in the quiet time and the quiet place is the quietness that you can get from just giving yourself over to him. You come to him as you are. And this is really, I like this, because this is really the gospel played out in our prayer life every single time we pray. Because the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel is that we come to God and that he loved us while we were yet sinners. So in other words, we come to God as we are for our salvation, and that's the good news of the gospel. And then we think that once we're saved, we sort of leave the gospel behind. It's like, no, the gospel keeps applying in every area of your life, and this is where the gospel applies in your prayer life. Because you come to God and you think, i gotta, you know, I got to clean up my act for a few days, i got to be good for a while, and then I'll be ready to come into his presence, or i got to get my thoughts sorted out, and then I'll be ready to talk to him. And it's like, no, that's not the good news of, of God. The good news of God and the good news of Jesus Christ is that just like the gospel, we come exactly as we are. And we keep coming exactly as we are, even in prayer. And so we come with our minds that are maybe weary and overburdened, but then we enter into a quietness of our mind as we give those things over to God. God wants you, the real you, to come into His presence. And He wants you to unburden yourself and um, hand over those things that are wearying you so that He can quiet your mind. He already knows them all anyway. You're not going to hide them from Him. You're not going to hide your disobedience from Him. You're not going to hide your frustrations from Him. You're not going to hide your anger from Him. You're not going to hide your unforgiveness from Him. He already knows it all. So you might as well just bring it into the prayer room with you and then give it over to Him. Because He has asked those who are weary and heavy burdened to come to Him. And He wants you to come. And He will quiet your mind by you handing those things to Him. When you're quieting your mind before God, you're really giving all of yourself over to Him. 
Whatever it is that is restless in your mind, give it over to God. If it's a person, if it's a circumstance, if it's a feeling, if it's a true thing, or if it's a lie that you're believing, give all of it to God and let Him quiet your mind. So you have your quiet time and your quiet place and you're quieting your mind before God. And then to help you with that quiet mind and quiet time and quiet place, a little practical tip for you here is to help you set it aside now. My little trick is just to have my notebook beside me or a piece of paper, and sometimes it's just my phone, but I prefer paper because it's faster. And after I give that thing to God in my mind, I write it down if I have to deal with it later. Because if you're like me, when you go to pray and you've got your quiet time and you've picked out your quiet place and you settle down before God uh, in whatever position you settle before God, right then is when you remember you have to get the oil changed on your car. Right? And, and right then is when you remember that thing you said, you know, to your brother or your sister uh, at Christmas and think, oh, shoot, shouldn't have said that, you know, maybe i got to give them a call. And then right then is when you remember, you know, every little detail that you have to go through or do. And so those are things that are wearying you and, and holding you back. So you give those things over to God, and then you just write them down. You know, you write down oil change, you write down call my, you know, call my brother, you write down whatever. You write those things down. And get them out of your mind and onto the paper so that you can quiet yourself before God. And that's okay. Just putting it down in a list frees your mind to simply be quiet before God. Now, I don't think Jesus wrote things down on a piece of paper uh, to, to quiet his mind before God. But I have to do that because I'm not Jesus, right? So I have to write things down uh, in order to get them out of my mind. And it also, it's kind of a... You know, it's a two-for-one deal because it also gives you a handy steps of obedience for after you pray. Because those things that you write down on that piece of paper that come to your mind when you're coming before God are probably things you need to do. And so when you leave that prayer time, you got them written out there for you, so it's very handy. It's just really practical. So you have a quiet time, a quiet place, and a quiet mind before God. But then you come to the actual point of prayer now. So we, we're in that spot where we need to actually pray. And we'll just go through this. Uh, Acts method of prayer that um, Graham mentioned. The adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And I learned this a long time ago, back in the 90s sometime. And again, there is no trick to it. It's not a ritual. It's not uh, uh, like rosaries or things like that. It doesn't have to be exactly this. And some people make it cats instead of acts. I guess it just depends on what you like to think of. Uh, it can go in either direction. Um, but the Acts method just works. Like if you were, and you need a method of prayer. If you were, if you were watching the football game last night, um, Aaron Rodgers' method of prayer was the Hail Mary. I mean, he just chucked it up there twice in a row and got these amazing catches. Um, now it's not a statement necessarily on the Hail Mary, but it didn't work. He lost the game at the end. So, um, but this is just a method. Uh, for prayer, and the method, as I say, is not as important as the heart thing, but, but we want to learn how to pray in our quiet time, in our quiet place, with our quiet mind. And the first thing you start with is adoration. And the purpose of adoration in terms of not the practice, but the attitude is to get God in the right place. When we start praying, we have to get God into the right place. The first thing we need to do in approaching God is to establish Him on the throne and us at His feet. When we go about our lives from the moment we wake up until our head hits the pillow, the world and our flesh and spiritual enemies are telling us that we are supposed to be on the throne of our life. Every commercial is telling us that you deserve better. It's telling you that you should have that trip or you should have that new appliance or you should have that mortgage or you should have that car and you deserve better and you, 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 you. 
everything in the world is telling you you should be on the throne. And so when we go before God, we have to start with just getting God in the right place. That He is on the throne of our life. That He is the center of our affections. We are not the center of our own affections. Because the world and our flesh and spiritual enemies will tell you minute by minute, day after day, that you are the center of your affections. And that's wrong. And if we carry that kind of self-centered thinking into our prayer, we're on a dead-end street. When the high priest wanted to approach God, we're told in Leviticus 16, he says he is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony so that he will not die. This is the high priest going into the presence of God, making sure that he knows that God is in the right place so that he doesn't die. Incense is the symbol of worship or of adoration, of placing God in his proper position in our life and in the universe. Revelation 5, 6, if you go to the other end of the Bible, says the 24, 5, 8, sorry, the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And so our prayers are meant to be worship to the Almighty God. And it's so easy for us to forget sometimes when we go into prayer that we are actually praying to the God of the universe. And we take advantage of, um, maybe to our own detriment, the attitude that we have towards God. We take advantage of uh, our familiarity with Him. We take advantage of the access that we have when we go into the presence of God, not understanding who it is we are actually praying to and taking it very seriously. As boldly as we have been commanded to enter into the presence of God, because the Bible says come boldly into the presence of God. Jesus has shed His blood in order for us to have this access to God. And so we are to be been commanded to and are to come boldly into the presence of God, but we can never forget whose presence we are actually entering. Boldly we can enter the throne room, but not flippantly or casually or laconically. If we're going to enter into the presence of the Almighty God of the universe, that entrance, although it may now be a bold entrance, also comes with adoration. It comes with an affirmation of God's greatness, of His glory, and of His mercy towards us. If God was not great and awesome, then what need would we have for boldness? The very fact that we're commanded to come boldly and we need boldness to come into the presence of God is because He is so awesome. And so our prayers should start with adoration. When we enter God's presence, fully aware of the dangerous privilege that we have. That without the blood of Jesus, without the torn veil, without the atonement, and without the incense of our prayers of worship and adoration going up, we'd be at the same risk as the high priests of being struck dead by the sheer glory and purity and power of the God whose presence we're entering into. God is still the same God today as He was when Isaiah saw Him. Isaiah 6 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And above Him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
The whole earth is full of his glory, and at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple filled with smoke. That's the God who we have the privilege to enter boldly into the presence of. But never flippantly, but with adoration. So we start with adoration of who he is and get him in the right place. And then in Isaiah 48, God says, For my own sake, for my own sake I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. God's glory is paramount in our relationship with him for our good. Not for his ego, but for our good. Because he is good and he is glorious and he is pure and he is righteous and he sanctifies us. And so the main purpose of adoration and worship is to start prayer, is to get us into the right heart attitude that we talked about earlier, right off the start, that He must increase and we must decrease. He's the Father and we are the children. He provides and we receive. All of those heart attitudes have to get in the right place in our prayer, and it starts with adoration. And so that's why we start with Acts, in the acronym of Acts, with adoration. It's where prayer starts. And it's also a great place to start the habit of praying Scripture back to God. Because all through the Psalms and in many other places, you can pray back to God the reality of His glory by His own Scripture. You could use Isaiah 6 there if you wanted to. And so you can just have your Bible open and just pray back to God His own glory. Because He will not yield it. Secondly is confession. And con- confession continues this heart attitude of getting you into the right place before God. Adoration puts God where He should be. Confession puts us where we should be. Prayer is repentance. It's confession of our weakness in general that we're not seeking the kingdom first most of the time, but we're often seeking ourselves first instead of the kingdom of God, as Matthew 6.33 says, but then also weakness in specifics. So we confess the fact that God isn't necessarily in the right place all the time in our life. And then there are certain things that we have to confess in terms of our obedience or disobedience towards God. But 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so when we come into the presence of this God that needs to be adored, this glorious God, and get Him in the right place, then confession puts us in the right place. That we are at the feet of that throne and not on it, and that we depend on Him for our salvation. And both Matthew and John link answered prayer to putting God first, His kingdom, and our obedience. You know, if our highest loyalty is not to God, then it has to be confessed and repented of. And repent, the word repent, neo, uh, repentance, it means upon reflection, changing your purpose or changing your mind. So it essentially means, literally, or as literally as we can get it in English from the Greek, is that we conform our minds to agree with God's opinion of things, and upon reflection and the conforming or reflecting on God's thinking on things, then we change our, our purpose, we change our mind, and we actually turn. There's this sense of turning and, and changing our mind and changing our action upon reflection and upon conforming our mind to God's mind. That's what repent means. And so if you change your mind to agree with God and you change your purpose or your actions to align with what God has revealed to you with the clear implication that you can't keep going the way you were. So part of confession is acknowledging that I can't keep going the way I've been going. I can't keep spending my time and my money and my resources on loving myself. I have to start loving God more in general or I can't keep 
pursuing that activity or treating this person that way or harboring that anger or coveting or hanging on to that unforgiveness, I have to actually stop doing that and start doing something different because repentance is turning and doing something different. Second Chronicles 7.14 puts it this way. God says quite plainly, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, get themselves in the right position towards me, and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will hear their land. And so there's this point, there's a reason that the C is in the acronym of Acts. There has to be repentance in order for us to get God in the right place and us in the right place and for there to be an, a, a turning and an obedience so that God can forgive and can heal and can hear. And so in addition to conforming our minds and then our actions to God in repentance, the second purpose of confession is to appropriate or to accept as real and accept as ours God's grace. That you know that by your repentance you are forgiven. When King David prayed, he acknowledged that God could discern his errors and forgive his hidden faults, it says in Psalm 19. And 1 John 1.9, as I said, says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so the second purpose in our heart attitude of confession is that we rejoice in the fact that our sins are forgiven. That God has heard us. And that we have been set free from the bondage of sin. And that he has purified us and set us on a path of righteousness. And so the gospel is made new and fresh to us in every single prayer as we accept as real and take possession of God's forgiveness for our sins by the work of Jesus. And so every time you pray, you're just going through a little mini gospel. It's always applying to your life. And then Thanksgiving, the third of the four in the acronym, Thanksgiving is responding to God's goodness to you. And this is another spot you could find scriptures to, pay, pay, to pray back to God. Psalm 118.1 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Or Psalm 100, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and praise His name, for the Lord is good and His love endures forever. And His faithfulness continues through all generations. There's so many songs of praise and thankfulness in Scripture that you can just pray those back to God in His own words. And then as you sort of dwell on this adoration of God and then on the forgiveness that you are receiving by confession and then thanksgiving just sort of naturally pours out, that you can be very specific and very complete in your giving thanks to God for life, for breath, for provision, for the relationships you have. And also thanksgiving for the hardships. Thanksgiving for the trials that you're going through as they are causing you to lean into God and causing you to be conformed more and more into the likeness of His Son. That as you uh, pray these prayers of thanksgiving, you realize you can count the blessings of God and realize how much He has done for you. To pray for and be thankful for training in righteousness, for your spiritual gifts, for the opportunities you have to serve Him in ministry, for the blessing that He pours out new every morning. And thankfulness also prepares us for the final part of this prayer method that we're talking about this morning. In Philippians 4, 6, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And so it's with thanksgiving, as we go through the, that sort of just 
all the things that we can praise God for and thank Him for in our life, then that naturally leads us into presenting our requests to God. That the thanksgiving comes with the requests. And so we move to the S, which is supplication. Supplication being a, a fancy word that works with the acronym uh, for asking. And uh, acknowledging, supplication is acknowledging our helplessness and glorifying Him by depending on Him. When we have ourselves fully in the right attitude towards God, this is where the whole attitude and the heart thing comes in. That's why I wanted to, to hit that right off the bat. Because we get through adoration and confession and we get our heart attitude right and thanksgiving for what He is. And then when we come to supplication, the heart attitude that we have is acknowledging our helplessness and glorifying Him by our depending on Him. Because we realize that the heart that we have or the attitude that you have there in supplication is very much as a child before a father, before a parent. And that's the attitude that's exactly the attitude that Jesus said we should have. That's exactly who Jesus said we should be. Right? The disciples were traveling back to Capernaum with Jesus. And along the way, as they're traveling with Jesus, if you remember the story, they're having a discussion about where they stood with God, right? They were having this heart attitude discussion about, you know, where's God and where's us? And, you know, where am I compared to John and Philip and Jesus? And where am I going to sit? And all of those. And they're having this discussion as they're traveling. And when they get back to Capernaum and they go into the house, it's probably Peter's house in Capernaum, Jesus asked them, you know, what were you talking about on the road? This is in Mark 9. So he just says, I heard you guys talking. What were you talking about? You know, and they like immediately clam up. You know, they're not saying what they were talking about because they know what they were talking about was stupid. <laughs> so, but Jesus knows that they have this attitude problem, right? He knows that his disciples have been slipping away from the right heart attitude that they should have of who they are, that they're to be like little children. And so what does Jesus do? Right after this, he does this remarkable thing. He says, he called a little child and had him stand among them. Right? In Matthew 18, as he tells the story, and as Matthew tells the story here, he says, And he said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you change, there's repentance again, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says this heart attitude that we're to have, this stance that we're to have before God, is literally like a child before a father, before a parent. And supplication puts us right there. Jesus himself says, I do nothing on my own. I only do what I see my Father doing. I was um, doing some research on that verse while I was preparing for this um, in Jesus' obedience to what the Father is doing. And, and uh, the guy who, who, had, who had written that, he had a really interesting insight. <laughs> so i got to share it with you. He said, imagine you're sitting in a restaurant, and there's this like, 31, 32-year-old man sitting at the table next to you. And you overheard him saying, you know, I don't do anything except, you know, what I see my father doing and what he tells me to do. And you would think, that guy has entanglement issues, right? Like, he's 30 years old and he doesn't do anything except what his father tells him to do. You know, like, it's just weird. But this is Jesus saying, this is our childlike attitude towards God. That we are to be like children before God. That we are, we're not capable of making wise decisions on our own without first consulting Him. Because if we make decisions for ourselves, we'll destroy our lives. But Jesus says that He doesn't do anything except what the Father, what I see my Father doing. Or He says in John 12, the Father tells me what to say and how to say it. And Jesus is inviting us into this life of, of dependence on the Father. 
that he's incapable of doing the life that, that God called him to do on this earth without having the Father's help. Jesus couldn't live this life without God's help. And so, we expect to? No. We have to be dependent upon the Father. And so we think of that child put in the circle of the disciples who were trying to figure out where they stood in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, your attitude has to be like this child. You have to become like a child. You have to become like me. And depend on the Father for everything. Ask Him for everything. Don't make a move without Him. When you think of asking like a child and using kids as a model for asking, I mean, if you've had a few kids, I'm not sure that using kids as a model for asking is a great model. But it's exactly the model that Jesus used. I mean, kids are demanding, right? You know, kids ask for all kinds of things, and they're not necessarily patient about it. But Jesus doesn't give up on that model of a child asking. You know, when he gives his parables of, uh, of, of prayer, and when he gives his teaching on prayer, his stories are stories of when adults are as demanding as kids. You look in, we don't have time for it now, but if you were to look in Luke 18, 1 to 18, when he's teaching on prayer, uh, the, the parable of the persistent widow, right, where she just keeps at it and at it and at it until the judge finally says, fine, I'm just going to, you know, whatever, give her what she wants, you know. And then right after teaching the disciples uh, prayer, how to pray, you know, he gives the, the teaching of the parable of the friend at midnight in Luke 11, right, where the guy has guests come over at midnight and he doesn't have anything, so he goes next door to his neighbor, and he just keeps pounding on the door at midnight until the guy finally gets up and answers. And Jesus says, this is how, this is how God's expecting you to ask. He's expecting you to come as a child and to ask for what it is that you need and keep asking and keep pushing. Pray until something happens. There's another acronym for you. I heard that one, too. Just keep pushing. Keep praying until something happens. Because God wants us to be like children who are asking for the things that we need. Jesus is pushing the point home. He's not laying off it. He's making it more explicit. Get your attitude right towards God. He is God and you are not. He is the Father and you are the child. And so ask with a childlike heart for the things that you need. And then Matthew 7, he uses children again as a model for our asking and God giving. He says, which of you, if his son ask for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven provide good gifts to those who ask Him? We're the children in all of these stories. We're the children in all of this teaching. And God is the Father. In Luke 10, the disciples return to Jesus. Just He keeps pushing it. The, the, the disciples come from being sent out by Jesus, and they come back in Luke 10, and they're all excited. They're, you know, they're jumping around. They're saying, even the demons are subject to us. And Jesus responds in prayer to God, and he thanks God that you have hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to little children. He prays this right after the disciples get back and tell them what's going on. It's like, is Jesus calling us children? Did he just call us kids? Is that what he just did there? Right? Because that's what, that's what, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying these disciples are all excited because they've been granted this power from God. And he thanks God that he's hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to little children. The children are the disciples. The children are us. It's revealed to us. Because God reveals things to those who humble themselves like a child. Now, we don't want to ask selfishly, and we don't also not want to ask at all. You have the Pentecostal mistake on one hand, and you have the Baptist mistake on the other. 
either asking selfishly or not asking at all, right? And James strikes the perfect balance of those two. James chapter 4 says you don't have because you don't ask. Or when you do ask, you ask selfishly. And so James says don't neither not ask at all and don't ask selfishly. You can't be demanding too much and you can't be demanding nothing at all. You can neither not ask nor ask selfishly. And either of those extremes either makes you a pagan or a deist, right? We don't want to be asking and trying to apply pressure to change God's mind or, or have God deliver the things that we want. That's what pagans do. They try to manipulate gods. And you don't want to be a deist, on the other hand, where God is, yeah, I believe in God, but he's out there somewhere. There's no sense praying because he doesn't listen anyway. He's just a watchmaker. He wound up the universe and it's running and he doesn't intervene. And so there's a danger in the way we approach prayer that we can be a pagan on one hand or a deist on the other. And we don't want to be either. We're not trying to manipulate God. And we're also believing that God actually does affect change in our life. And the middle of the two, with paganism and deism, is exactly what Jesus teaches. It's this humble, childlike dependency of asking God to care for us. And so what we are always taught in Scripture is ask boldly and surrender completely. Go boldly into the presence of God and ask boldly for the things that you need and then surrender completely to His wisdom in providing the answer to that prayer. Which is exactly as Jesus prayed in Gethsemane in Mark 14. He says, Abba, Father. He said, everything is possible for you. I believe you can do it. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus asked boldly for the very thing that is nearest and dearest on his mind right that moment in the next 24 hours of his life. He asked boldly, but he surrenders completely to the will of God. And then wait. God intends our prayers to be answered, and he does answer prayer, although not always as we expect, nor in our timing as we looked at last week. He does answer. Isaiah 64.4 says this, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts on those who wait for Him. And so it's not part of the acronym, but it's the next thing you do. After you've got in the quiet time, quiet place, quiet mind, gone through your prayer, done the supplication in a childlike way, and then it's the waiting. Because nobody has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for Him. And it's by and it's in constant prayer that God intends for us to wait for Him to act. My biggest problem in prayer is hurry. And so in all of these habits or systems, the most helpful thing for me has been this little trick, similar to the note-taking, has been writing out my prayers. That I literally take a book, a binder, a little notepad, and I write my prayers out by verbatim, sentence by sentence, because it slows me down. And I fall into and out of different prayer habits. And that's okay. Prayer doesn't always look the same for your whole life. But of all the prayer habits that I've picked up and set down over the years, this has been the most powerful one for me. And I always eventually return to it when I really feel the need to dig into prayer in God. I literally write out my prayer to God word for word. Not as a list, not as point form, not as just things I have to remember. But I slow down and I write out the sentences that I am praying. And it slows me down and it creates space, even while I'm praying, to hear God's promptings. And I also, to have time to just give to listening, but slowing down my handwriting in prayers is very helpful in that listening as well, to give prayer, give him time to respond. 
And it's, again, another two-for-one deal because you can look back over your past prayers. If you do this, you can flip back through your notebook and you can see the, what God has answered in unexpected way, ways and where you have grown spiritually and where uh, you have been obedient to do the things that you wrote down while you were quieting your mind. It was great to write out your prayers. Now, it's very interesting to me to notice that that verse from Isaiah 64, and we're almost done here. Just so much to teach on prayer, but it's really interesting for me to notice that verse from Isaiah 64 is quoted again in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. And he quotes Isaiah 64 in 1 Corinthians 2.9. But when Paul quotes the Hebrew Old Testament, he naturally translates it into the Greek. And I like it because he was a little closer to the source than us in both Hebrew and Greek. And so when Paul translates, it's, it, it's interesting when he, when he puts it into the Greek Paul interprets the nuance of the Hebrew words of those who wait for him into those who love him. He quotes the exact verse, but he inserts love for wait. And so for Paul and for us, I think the meaning is clear. That no eye is seen and we can't comprehend the God who acts for those who wait on him is loving God. Waiting on God to act and faithful, faithfully believing that God will act is our love towards God. It's the best expression of our reliance on God. When we think of the verbs about God, we think about you believe in God, you obey God, you follow God, you serve God, and those are all good things, and we should do those things. But those verbs are mostly talking about us. But in prayer, we're really trying not to do anything. We're trying to just wait and trust in God that He will act towards us. And our waiting for Him to act is our expression of love. I'll close with this. As John Piper illustrated before as an example of what honoring looks like, and this is what I mean by this waiting for God to act in answer to our prayers. The greatest honor that you can give a mountain stream is not to talk about it or admire it or keep your distance from it. The greatest honor you can show a clear mountain stream is to drink from it, bathe in it, be refreshed and sustained by it. And that's how we honor God in prayer. We depend on Him to act for us, to clean us, to sustain us, to refresh us, to provide for us. The way to show our love to God in prayer is to count on Him and depend on Him to act. To ask for His sustenance, to ask for His provision, to ask in supplication that our Father be our Father and provide for our children. That's how we honor God and that's how we show love to Him. Not by withholding our requests, but by offering them to God in faith. So put these things into practice. Quiet time, quiet place, quiet mind. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Slowly, thoughtfully, giving time to wait on God and wait for Him to act on your behalf. He will not fail you. Now on Sunday, January 31st, we're going to try and help you put this into practice as a church. We're going to stay after church on January 31st. And I encourage as many of you as possible to do that. For some of you, it'll be sort of a workshop because we're going to try different types of prayer and we're going to be in different stations. We're not all necessarily going to be together all the time. And so there'll be different ways to pray for different parts of our family and different things in our church and for the community. And there'll be different ways that we're praying. And if you just come on January 31st with an expectation to learn to pray and to pray differently and to pray corporately, then we'll really as a church as a whole want to put ourselves in this position of depending on God and trusting that He will act. 
and no eye has seen, nobody has comprehended a God who acts for his people the way God does. And that's really what we're after here at Lakeside. And so just put that in the back of your mind, the 31st, Elder Jim and I are going to be working on it in the next week or so to put together what we're going to be doing. And I'm going to talk about fasting before then too. So just put that in the back of your mind for January 31st to start to put into practice these very practical things about prayer. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of Jesus. Thank you for even just the, the reality of this uh, little pattern of prayer that we can practice. And Lord, I pray that we would take these things this week and make them meaningful in our lives, that we would uh, inject new life into our prayer so that we can adore you, so that we can confess, so that we can give you thanks, so that we can humble ourselves like children and ask you like children for the things that we need and then wait for you to act. Father, you've laid it all out for us. Strengthen us. Give us the discipline to put it into practice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.